Among the narrow cobblestone streets, which, like a game of noughts and crosses, cover one of the ancient quarters of Paris, is the Rue de Bac. And though this area is well away from all the popular places of interest and the cosmopolitan crowds, there is, in this maze, where a family Citroen can barely squeeze by, a profusion of colour and bustling activity typical of la vie parisienne. Children laugh and play, women chat, and the men have their glass of wine and somehow manage to find a piece of ground the size of a pocket handkerchief on which to play boule, a game similar to bowls, during their lunch break. Motorists shout and sound their horns as they vie with one another to gain access in order to make deliveries. Shoppers, quite unmindful of the commotion, weave in and out, either on foot or riding the popular bicyclette. The smell of coffee and freshly baked bread fills the air, and flowers, everywhere there are flowers. Pavement cafes abound in places where there are hardly any pavements, and the long and narrow Rue de Bac ably camouflages departmental and furniture stores, hotels, high-class confectioners, butchers, hairdressers, and the little shop, where, at a price, beautiful garments are handmade to order. When one walks about this busy, prosperous corner of suburban Paris, it is hard to credit that three centuries ago it was a slum area in which people lived in dire poverty and distress, and where babies were left on the streets simply because they were extra mouths to feed. It was right into the midst of this squalor that a very firebrand of a man came. A man so outraged by the cruel misery and oppression of his fellow countrymen that his anger knew no bounds. He stormed, he raved, he pleaded. He was God's wrathful man. Indeed, to the citizens of 17th century Paris, Abbe Vincent de Paul must have appeared to be as redoubtable as the great reforming prophets of old. He burst onto the scene like a tornado, but to better effect, for soon aristocratic men and women were supplying money and the wherewithal for his needs. But who was to go out into the streets and hovels to feed the rough crusts of neglected humanity? Who would rescue abandoned babies and nurse the sick? Hardly the beautifully clothed genteel ladies of Paris with their fine gestures and petit point embroidery. The answer came in the form of Louise de Marillac, who worked side by side with Monsieur Vincent, as he lovingly became known. Together, they enlisted peasant women, whom Louise taught, trained and supervised. Volunteers grew in number and the work expanded. Before long, old buildings were converted into shelters for the poor and hospitals for the sick and so the practical side was added to the arms and support of the good ladies of Paris. This little congregation soon flourished, and when ecclesiastical approval was obtained, it took the name of the Daughters of Charity. The mother house of this famous order can be found halfway along the Rue de Bac, and like many of the nearby commercial concerns, it is able to hide itself inconspicuously away behind the shutters of many storied apartments. In fact, so well hidden is its entrance that in the early morning one is hard pushed to find it. This problem does not arise later in the day, for one has only to follow one of the many groups of people who alight from coaches at the top of the rue, and they will lead the way to the convent, and then to the convent chapel.
On entering this chapel, one is immediately struck by the delicate pastel mural of Our Lady, which dominates the sanctuary. But there's no mistaking the presence of St. Vincent de Paul. On the right-hand side altar is a reliquary containing the heart of Le Monsieur, the heart which beat with such fervent love three centuries ago. While on the opposite altar, a wax effigy of St. Louise, his constant companion, encases her remains. But it is not because of these great personages that an unending stream of people comes to the little chapel in the Rue du Bac, but to another whose incorrupt body lies in peaceful repose under the altar of Our Lady of the Globe. Not that St. Vincent can be left entirely out of the picture, for when she, whose body now rests in a crystal reliquary, was a young woman, he began to influence her. While she was asleep one night, she had a very strange dream. She dreamt that she was praying in church when quite suddenly an old priest came towards her and beckoned. Feeling afraid, she ran away. Then, as the dream continued, she found herself beside the bed of a sick person. The old priest was also there. He spoke. It is good for you to care for the sick, my child. Ah, you run away from me now, but one day you will be glad to come to me. God has designs on you. Don't forget. The young woman was Catherine Labore, who had for some time thought about joining a religious congregation for women. Catherine Labore was born on May the 2nd, 1806, at Fan le moutier in the wine-growing province of Burgundy. Her parents were pious and God-fearing, and as a result of her early training, the girl became very devout, as well as having a great love for Our Lady. When Catherine was nine years old, her mother died, and the child was sent to live with her aunt. Two years later, she returned home, where, in spite of her youth, she took over the exacting task of looking after all the other members of the family. Catherine's days were full, for the Labores had had eleven children, and she was their ninth. But even with all of the housework and cooking, as well as helping on their large farm, she always found time to say her prayers. And not only that, but each morning saw her crossing the fields to attend the dawn mass. At the age of twelve, Catherine made her first communion, and from then on she became even more fervent, and whenever she could excuse herself from the household duties, she hastened to the small church of Fain and knelt on the stone floor before the tabernacle to pray. As well as this, she did acts of penance, and also fasted every Friday and Saturday. When she was eighteen years old, Catherine experienced the celebrated dream, and this it was that caused her to broach the subject with her father regarding leaving home to join a religious order. This request made Monsieur Le Bourret quite furious. He wouldn't hear of the idea, and in fact bitterly opposed his daughter. When four years later Catherine did eventually leave home, it was not to a convent that she went, but to her brother's noisy workman's café in Paris to serve at tables. This move was a plan of her father's, who felt quite sure that once the girl was thrown into the city atmosphere, she would soon find herself a husband, and so forget all this nonsense of going into a convent. But it didn't work out this way at all, and Catherine, not being used to this type of life, became increasingly more unhappy. Eventually she left Paris to live with a sister-in-law at Châtillon-sur-Seine, where the Daughters of Charity had a house. Acting on impulse one day, Catherine went along to speak to the superior. She was shown into the parlour by a young nun. 
Looking around the room, she was attracted to a picture of an old priest, and she recognized him as the priest of her dream. Who's that? Catherine asked the nun. Oh, that's our founder, St. Vincent de Paul. At that moment, Catherine made her mind up, and though relations with her father remained strained, and after much delay, Monsieur Le Bourret finally gave his consent, and Catherine was accepted as a postulant at Châtillon. Three months later, she walked through the doors of the mother house at 140 Rue de Bac in Paris. And what a welcome awaited her. The mystical experiences for which Catherine Le Bourret later became renowned began to happen in the first week of her arrival. The person who welcomed her was none other than St. Vincent himself. But instead of seeing him simply as an old priest, Catherine was privileged to see his heart, the symbol of his burning love. The first time I saw the heart of St. Vincent, she wrote some years later, it was white, the colour of skin which signified peace, innocence and union. Then I saw it red like fire, as though to enkindle charity in hearts. Then it was red and black, symbolising sadness. This was to do with the revolution. I was also favoured with a great grace, and this was seeing our Lord in the Blessed Sacrament every day of my stay in the Rue de Bac, excepting on the days I doubted, doubted that I had seen him, that is. The only person she told about this at the time was her spiritual director, Father Allardell, who naturally enough was sceptical and advised Catherine to continue peacefully with her novitiate. But a few months later, she had more to tell him about an event that happened on July 18th, 19th, 1830, the eve of St. Vincent de Paul's feast day. Well, Father, I went to bed at the usual time with the other novices, and at about half-past eleven I heard my name called. It was quite distinct. In fact, it was repeated three times. I drew back the curtains which surrounded the bed, and there stood a child. He was about four or five years old and very beautiful, and there was a brilliant light all around him. Come to the chapel, he said. The Blessed Virgin is waiting for you. Oh, dear, I thought, I can't do that, or someone will be sure to hear me. But the child went on. Don't be afraid. It's half past eleven, and everyone's asleep. Come along. I shall go with you. Well, after these last words, I didn't waste any more time, and I got up and dressed quickly, and then followed the child. And to my amazement, all the lights were lit everywhere. And when we reached the chapel door, he only touched it with the tip of his finger, and it opened. Then he led me to the sanctuary, but left me at the altar rails while he himself went into it. I must say, I was more than a little surprised to see the candles burning on the altar, just as if Mass were about to be said. I couldn't see Our Lady anywhere, and so I automatically knelt down. It must have been about midnight when I heard the child's voice again. The Blessed Virgin is coming. Then there was the rustle of silk. So I looked in the direction from which it came, and then I saw a very beautiful lady in the sanctuary. I watched as she went to the chair usually occupied by our father director, and then she sat down. The child said to me, here is the Blessed Virgin. Without even thinking about it, I went straight to her and fell on my knees at her feet, and I put my hands on her lap just as if she were my own mother. I really don't know how long I stayed like that. All I do know 
is that after I had spoken with her for a long time, she went away. During the course of this apparition, Our Lady said, The times are evil, and many sorrows will befall France. The throne will be overturned, and the whole world will be plunged into misery. Religious orders will be persecuted, and some of the clergy will be killed. The cross, my child, will be treated with contempt. They will hurl it to the ground. Blood will flow, and they will open up the side of our Lord. The very streets will run with blood. Monsignor the Archbishop will be stripped of his garments and the whole world will be in sadness. Our Lady also told Catherine to pass on a message to the director regarding the laxity of the community, but above all she made special reference to the great mission with which Catherine was to be entrusted. My child, our Lady said, I have a great mission to entrust to you. It will cause you a great deal of suffering, but you will overcome this knowing that what you do is for the glory of God. People will oppose you, but do not be afraid. You will be given the grace to bear it. You will be shown certain things. Give an account of them without fear. You will be given inspiration through prayer. Then Our Lady told her, Come to the foot of the altar. There, graces will be poured out on all those who ask for them with confidence and fervor. This apparition was but a forerunner of a major one which took place on Saturday, November the 27th, 1830. These are Catherine's words. It was half past five in the evening, and I was sitting in the chapel meditating, and then I heard the sound of rustling silk. It came from the right-hand side of the sanctuary. I raised my head, and I saw the Blessed Virgin. She was standing by a picture of St. Joseph. She was wearing a long white silk gown, and her head was covered with a white veil which flowed down to her feet. Both the gown and the veil seemed to be bathed in gold, rather like a sunrise. Her face was so very beautiful, I just can't begin to describe it. Her feet, oh yes, they were resting on a white globe. Well, I could only see the front half of it. Her hands, which were on a level with her waist, held a smaller golden ball with a gold cross on top. Her eyes were raised heavenwards, and her face was simply glowing with light. She was so beautiful. Quite suddenly, her fingers were covered with rings, which were inset with precious stones. Rays of dazzling light shone from them, and these rays spread out on all sides so that I couldn't see the Blessed Virgin's feet. 
She lowered her eyes and looked at me, and then she said, This globe, you see, represents the whole world, but at the same time it also represents France, and every individual person as well. The rays, those are the symbols of the graces which I shower down on all those who ask me for them. The stones from which no light shines are the graces which people forget to ask me for. At this moment, an oval frame surrounded the Blessed Virgin, and on it was written, O Mary, conceive without sin, pray for us who have recourse to thee. Then the small globe disappeared, and Our Lady's hands, filled with the graces which the rays symbolized, were lowered and gracefully extended. Then she said, Have a medal made like this. Those who wear it will receive great graces, especially if they wear it round the neck. Graces in abundance will be given to those who have confidence. As I heard these last words, the oval seemed to turn, and on the other side I could see the letter M surmounted by a cross with a bar at its base, and underneath this monogram the hearts of Jesus and Mary. One was surrounded by a crown of thorns, and the other pierced by a sword. When Sister Catherine was questioned at a later date regarding the design, she stated that the letter M, the cross, and the two hearts were enclosed in a frame of twelve stars. Just before the end of that year, Our Lady again appeared to Catherine, showing her once more how the medal was to be designed. When Father Allardell, her spiritual director, heard of this extraordinary mission, he remained sceptical and turned a deaf ear to her repeated requests to have a medal made. But Our Lady continued to remind Catherine, and even chastised her for not fulfilling her mission. Eventually, unable to ignore the nun's continual insistence, Father Allardell had an interview with Monsignor Quelan, Archbishop of Paris, and he, finding nothing contrary to the teaching of the Church, gave permission for the medal to be struck. When ready, these were distributed. One year after entering the mother house at the Rue de Bac, Catherine left and took up her duties at a hospice for old men at Engheim, where she spent the next forty years looking after them. Her patience was unending, and no matter how cantankerous and ungrateful these old folk were, Catherine simply increased her love for them and gave them even more attention. During these years she spoke little, and lived in a constant state of recollection, and never once did she mention either the apparitions or the medal, until a few months before she died. Realizing that she had not much longer to live, Catherine made everything known to her superior, so that the statue which Our Lady had ordered her to have made in remembrance of the apparitions might be erected in the mother house. Sister Catherine was seventy years old when she died and no life could have been more ordinary or simple than hers. She prayed, submitted, and obeyed without comment. She was indeed, as Pope Pius XII declared at the time of her beatification, truly the saint of silence.
Our Lady's prophecies were soon to come true, for the 19th century turned out to be a turbulent one, and France in particular was in a great state of ferment. The revolution of 1830, which came within a week of Our Lady's first appearance to Catherine Le Bourre, gradually took its toll, and governments came and went with monotonous regularity. During the revolt, as if in preview of the plight of the bishops of Paris, Archbishop Quelan had twice to flee the city for his life, just as Mary predicted. At a later date, two other archbishops were not so fortunate. On top of all this came a cholera epidemic, which ravaged Paris and took the lives of almost 20,000 people in one year. The church did not escape from all the turmoil either. It had always undergone its share of persecution in the past, but now it became even more vulnerable to the anti-religious influences of liberalism and free thinking, which at that time were riding on the crest of a wave. Old truths, which had for centuries stood firm, were now questioned while the Christian concept of life was rapidly disappearing. Prayer and moderation had given way to self-indulgence and greed. Everyone was so preoccupied with the world that the sacraments were neglected and very few people attended Mass. The Church of Our Lady of Victories in the commercial quarter of Paris was no exception to the rule, and it was to this poor and abandoned church that Father Charles de Jeannette was sent. The church was always deserted, even on feast days, and by the time Father de Jeannette had been there four and a half years, the situation was hardly any different. All his efforts to change this deplorable state proved to be fruitless and the poor man became utterly depressed, so much so that he made up his mind to hand in his resignation. But while he was saying Mass on December the 3rd, 1836, something inside him seemed to say, Consecrate your parish to the very holy and immaculate heart of Mary. Father de Jeannette dismissed the idea and finished saying Mass. While he knelt making his thanksgiving, however, the same words came again. Consecrate your parish to the very holy and immaculate heart of Mary. Could this be the answer? The priest asked himself. After all, he did have a great love of Mary, and he had been among the first to obtain one of the medals of the Immaculate Conception from the Rue de Bac. Without wasting another moment, Father de Jeannette set to work. First of all, he decided to establish an association with prescribed prayers and rules in honour of the Holy and Immaculate Heart of Mary for the conversion of sinners, and for his badge he would use the medal. Within a matter of days, he had drawn up the statutes and received the approval of the Archbishop of Paris, and then, on December the 11th, he announced from the pulpit that devotions would be held that evening to implore from God, through the intercession of Mary's heart, the conversion of sinners. But as there were only ten people present at Mass, Father de Jeannette did not have very high expectations. But to his great astonishment, two men came to the sacristy and asked him to hear their confessions. And at seven o'clock, the time at which the new devotions were scheduled to start, close on five hundred people turned up. The conversion had begun, and gradually the parish of Our Lady of Victories became the most devout in Paris. 
Its fame was to spread much further afield, though. In 1838, as a result of the remarkable graces granted to the parish, Pope Gregory XVI issued a brief. He created and erected for all time in the Church of Our Lady of Victories the confraternity of the very holy and immaculate heart of Mary for the conversion of sinners. The year of 1838 proved to be a memorable one for those who loved Our Lady. Approval was not only given to the happenings at Our Lady of Victories, thus promoting devotion to the Immaculate Heart of Mary, but also it was given to the Medal of the Immaculate Conception so closely associated with it. Now that it was quite in order to wear this medal, and because of the countless reports pouring in of favours received, it soon became known as the Miraculous Medal. Archbishop Kellon, who had authorised the first minting of the medal, also took further steps. He obtained permission to solemnise the Feast of the Immaculate Conception on the second Sunday of Advent, and to insert in the preface of the Mass, Ete in Immaculato Conceptione, and also to include in the Litany of Loreto the invocation, Queen conceived without sin, pray for us. When, therefore, in 1854, the Immaculate Conception was proclaimed as a dogma of the Catholic Church, it came as no great surprise. Four years later, Our Lady visited France again. This time she appeared to a 14-year-old peasant girl named Bernadette Subaru, who lived in the village of Lourdes in the High Pyrenees. It was while Bernadette, together with her sister and a friend, was out gathering sticks for firewood that she first saw a beautiful lady. This lady, clothed in white with a blue sash round her waist, was standing in a niche in an old disused cavern known as Massabielle to which she asked the young girl to come for the next 14 days. Once the news of this happening spread, Bernadette had to put up with abuse and ill-treatment from family and villagers alike, and this fulfilled the words of Our Lady, who said, I do not promise to make you happy in this world, but in the next. Despite opposition and ill-health, Bernadette went to Massabielle as the lady had asked her. Before long, she received the first message which was to be passed on to the world. This the girl delivered while her eyes overflowed with tears. Turning towards the crowds gathered at Massabielle, Bernadette called out, The lady said, Penance, 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 pray for poor sinners. From then on, she became a living example to everyone. She kissed the ground, prayed the rosary, and also accepted all the abuse which came her way without retaliation. Many apparitions later, and in answer to Bernadette's repeated question of, Who are you? the lady finally gave her name. Parting her hands, she stretched them towards the ground, then joining them again at her breast, she raised her eyes to heaven and said, 
I am the Immaculate Conception. This must have seemed like heavenly approval to the latest dogma of the Catholic Church, but more than this, it confirmed the definition in an unexpected manner. And so, right into the middle of 19th century France, came another explosion. But this was the complete opposite to what was going on. This was by nature loving and gentle. Mary Immaculate entered the world. That year of 1830 marks the beginning of the Marian era, the beginning of an age when our Heavenly Mother shows her concern for the world. At La Salette, another village high in the hilltops of France, she repeated her warnings about the consequences of sin and stated in crystal-clear language that she could not restrain the hand of her son for very much longer. It was on September the 19th, 1846, that Our Lady appeared to Maximin, an 11-year-old boy, and Melanie, a girl aged 15, while they were out in the fields looking after cattle. They first saw her sitting with her head on her hands. Then she stood up and said, Come, my children, do not be afraid. I am here to proclaim great news to you. And as she spoke, the tears began flowing from her eyes. If my people do not wish to give themselves, I shall be forced to let go the hand of my son. It is so heavy and weighs me down so much. I suffer all the time for everyone, and if I do not want my son to abandon you, I have got to pray continually. And as for you all, you take no notice. The harvest is already spoiling, and this is the fault of everyone. Unless people listen and change their way of life, there will be a great famine. But before the famine comes, children under the age of seven will begin to tremble and will die in the arms of those who hold them. The others will do penance through hunger. The nuts will go bad and the grapes will rot. If the people are converted, this will not happen. Then Our Lady asked the children, Do you say your prayers properly? And when they both said that they didn't, she replied, Oh, my children, you must pray night and morning. When you are not able to do more, say an Our Father and a Hail Mary. But when you have time, you must say more. After this, and before leaving them, Our Lady delivered her parting words, which she repeated a second time. My children, you will make this known to all my people. Then she disappeared. The next morning, Maximin and Melanie told the full story to Father Perrin, 
the parish priest of La Salette, who believed the Blessed Virgin had appeared to them and recounted the happening and the message to the congregation who were present at Mass. The children of La Salette said that the Holy Virgin was all beauty and all love when she delivered her warnings. At Lourdes, she beseeched Bernadette to tell the people to pray and do penance to save sinners. But the real depth of her motherly concern shows much more clearly at Fatima. And if Paris heralded the era of the Immaculate Heart of Mary, Fatima was certainly to fulfil it. The year was 1917, and with the First World War still causing havoc, Europe was one gigantic battlefield. Misery and bloodshed abounded. Yet, for all that, it could have been a world apart from the peaceful slopes of the Sierra Dare in mid-Portugal. The sun shone, and the air seemed saturated with the scent of flowers which carpeted the earth in a profusion of colour. The birds were joyfully singing, and the gentle buzz from bees and other creatures were the only sounds that disturbed the tranquillity. It was the 13th day of May when three young shepherds, Lucia Santos, aged 10, and her cousins Francisco Mato, 8, and his seven-year-old sister Jacinta, leisurely crossed the Sierra with their sheep. They continued on until they came to a large natural hollow called the Cova d'Aeria. After skirting the arable plots of land and then putting the animals to graze, the three cousins sat down and ate their own lunches. When the last crumb had been swallowed, they prayed the rosary, as was customary, and then discussed which game to play. Francisco suggested building a castle, and this the girls agreed to. And while he prepared a piece of ground, Lucia and Jacinta went off and gathered rocks. They became so engrossed in their project that a sudden flash of light startled them. Fearing a storm, although the cloudless sky belied this, Lucia, Francisco and Jacinta quickly marshalled the sheep together and prodded them in the direction of home. Just as they passed a large tree, there was another flash, and the children increased their pace, but hardly had they taken many more steps when the two girls stopped in front of a small home oak tree. Francisco continued on his way. Lucia and Jacinta could hardly believe their eyes, for there, bathed in a light more brilliant than the sun, and clothed in white with her feet resting on the uppermost branches of the tree, stood the most beautiful lady they had ever seen. The lady spoke. Don't be afraid. I won't hurt you. Who are you? Where do you come from? Lucia asked. I am from heaven. What do you want of us? I came to ask you to come here for six months in succession, on the same date, at the same hour. Then I will tell you what it is I want. Afterwards, I shall come a seventh time. Before leaving the children, she asked them, Do you want to offer yourselves to God, to endure all the sufferings he may choose to send you for the sins by which he is offended, and also for the conversion of sinners? Oh yes, yes we do replied Lucia, answering for all three. In saying yes, however, the three young children very quickly discovered that life was never to be easy for them again. There was a lot of suffering in store for them.
During the five subsequent visits, Our Lady unfolded what was required of them. She asked for daily recitation of the rosary to bring the war to an end, and also for peace in the world. She asked, too, for sacrifices and penances for the conversion of sinners, and in reparation for sins committed against her Immaculate Heart. She also told them that people must amend their lives and ask forgiveness of their sins. Do not offend God any more, for he is already deeply offended, she said. During her second visit, which was on June the 13th, 1917, the lady, as the young shepherds called her, had this to say. Francisco and Jacinta will not live many years, but you, and she looked at Lucia, you must remain on earth for some time longer to make me known and loved. Jesus wishes to establish devotion to my immaculate heart, but don't worry, I will never forsake you. With these words, she opened her hands, and the light coming from them enveloped the children, penetrating their hearts and the very depths of their souls. In this light, which they understood to be the Holy Trinity, they could see themselves. At the same time, before the palm of Our Lady's right hand, was her heart encircled and pierced by thorns. During her third visit, on July the 13th, Our Lady showed them a vision of hell. In the midst of a great sea of fire, they saw demons and human beings looking as if they were red-hot coals, transparent and black or bronze-colored. They floated about without weight or equilibrium, shrieking and groaning in despair. The devils were distinguishable in the horrible, loathsome forms of unknown animals. Horrific though this sounds, the vision of hell was not so much to frighten the children, but more to illustrate, even though graphically, what does and what will happen to those who persist in following the evil and wicked ways of the world. The Mother of God was also showing quite clearly why her pleading for prayer and penance, reparation and amendment of lives was so necessary. Looking on to this picture fulfilled its purpose and Lucia, Francisco and Jacinta set about their mission with vigour and a greater sense of urgency, particularly when they came to understand that because of the war, so many people were being killed unexpectedly, unprepared. In the first instance, they decided to forego games and dancing and other amusements because they felt it made a good act of penance. Gradually, however, they realized just how trivial these pastimes were in comparison with the job they had been given. But even though they became more serious-minded, they never lost their exuberance for life. As well as going to look for sacrifices, the young shepherds said the rosary, spent long hours in prayer, made reparation, and also enjoyed long discussions about the Holy Trinity, our Lord's Sacred Heart, and the Immaculate Heart of His Mother. The association of the Sacred Heart of Jesus with that of the Immaculate Heart of Mary, however, first began for the children in 1916, 
a year before Our Lady appeared, when on three separate occasions an angel appeared to Lucia, Francisco and Jacinta. Don't be afraid, he said to them. I am the angel of peace. Pray with me. Repeat after me, O oh my God, I believe, I adore, I hope in you, and I beg pardon for those who do not believe, adore, or hope in you. Then he continued, You must pray very much. The hearts of Jesus and Mary are always attentive to you. On the next occasion, he told them, Pray, pray a great deal. The most holy hearts of Jesus and Mary have plans for you. Offer up sacrifices continually as an act of reparation for the sins by which the Almighty is offended. During this, his final visit, the angel taught the children this prayer. Most Holy Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, I offer you the most precious body, blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus Christ, present in all the tabernacles of the earth, in reparation for the outrages and indifferences with which he himself is offended, and through the infinite merits of his most sacred heart and of the immaculate heart of Mary, I beg the conversion of poor sinners. After they had said the prayer three times, the angel gave them Holy Communion. He had appeared holding a chalice, above which was a host from which fell drops of blood. The host he gave to Lucia, and while Francisco and Jacinta drank from the chalice, the angel said, Take and drink the body and blood of Jesus Christ, horribly insulted by ungrateful men. Make reparation for their sins, and console your God. And for the rest of his young life, this is exactly what Francisco did. Console God. Though the boy said the rosary daily, carried out acts of mortification, and offered up everything unpleasant to help sinners on the right road, what really took him over was our Lord being so unhappy and in need of comfort. Most of Francisco's comforting, however, was done in front of the tabernacle in the old Fatima church, and here he sat for hours on end. This great love of Francisco's for the Blessed Sacrament and this burning desire to console Jesus and make reparation to him for all the indifferences accorded him in the tabernacle, of which the angel spoke, are very reminiscent of the revelations of the Sacred Heart to St. Margaret Mary. Although there has been devotion to the Sacred Heart of Jesus throughout the ages, it was this nun who brought it to prominence in the 17th century. Margaret Mary was born on July the 22nd, 1647, in a small village in Lower Burgundy, the same region of France that a century and a half later produced St. Catherine Labouré. The similarities do not end there, however, for both were of peasant stock and had a particular love of Our Lady. When her mother died, Catherine, for instance, turned in her grief to Our Lord's mother. Standing on a chair in Madame Labouré's bedroom, the little nine-year-old girl took from a shelf a statue of the Blessed Virgin, and holding it close to her, she said, Now, dear Blessed Mother, you will be my mother. In the same way, Margaret Mary too had a special predilection towards Mary, and she owed a remarkable cure of a serious illness to Our Lady's intercession. I used to take all my needs to her, she once wrote. 
and she watched over me carefully and saved me from many a grave danger. I was far too shy to approach her divine son, but I always asked the help of her prayers, and then I placed all my trust in her. Soon after she became a nun of the Visitation Order, Margaret Mary was privileged with a vision of Our Lady. And again, like Catherine Labore all those years later, these mystical experiences were to become a part of her life and for the benefit of others. This singling out, however, was counterbalanced by constant suffering as well as terrible loneliness and ridicule. "'You have a long and difficult way to go and a lot to suffer,' said Our Lady. But there is nothing to be afraid of. I will never leave you. I promise you can rely on my protection. These words of the Mother of God are the same as those spoken to the saint of the miraculous medal when entrusting her with a mission. And again, they were repeated in 1917 to the three young children of Fatima. Such is the price of acceptance. Margaret Mary Alacoque began work in earnest when she was 26 years old and had been at the convent at paris le monial for two years. One evening, while she was kneeling in the chapel before the Blessed Sacrament, Jesus revealed his heart to her for the first time. My divine heart, he told her, is so passionately fond of the human race, and of you in particular, that it cannot keep back the pent-up flames of its burning charity any longer. They must burst out through you and reveal my heart to the world so as to enrich mankind with my precious treasures. I am letting you see them now, and they include all the graces of sanctification and salvation necessary to snatch men from the brink of hell. You are the one I have chosen for this great scheme. You are so utterly unworthy and ignorant. It will be all my work. Then, on the first Friday of each succeeding month, there was a repetition of the favour. I'd see the Sacred Heart, said Sister Margaret Mary, like a dazzling sun, its burning rays shining right into my heart. It was during these revelations that our Lord described his great love for mankind, and yet he had been met with nothing but indifference. This hurts me more than anything I suffered in my passion. Even a little love from them in return, and I shall regard all that I had done for them as next to nothing, and even look for a way of doing still more for them. The final revelation took place in June 1675, during the octave of Corpus Christi. One day, while Margaret Mary was kneeling before the Blessed Sacrament, our Lord said to her, as he disclosed his heart, Here is my heart so deeply in love with mankind that it will stop at nothing to prove it and wear itself out until it is utterly spent. But I get very little appreciation from most. On the contrary, there is only ingratitude. I see their irreverence and sacrileges as well as their coldness and contempt for me in this sacrament of love. What hurts me most of all is that hearts dedicated to my service behave in this way. That is why I am asking you to have the Friday after the octave of Corpus Christi set aside as a special feast in honour of my heart. A day in which to receive Holy Communion and make a solemn act of reparation for the indignities I have received in the Blessed Sacrament 
while exposed on all the altars of the world. I promise you too that I shall open my heart to all who honor me in this way and who get others to do the same. They will feel the power of my love. These words are practically identical to those of Our Lady of Fatima and particularly those of the angel. But at least, as far as the shepherds were concerned, these pleas did not fall on deaf ears. Francisco, in particular, was consumed with love for our Lord, and his only wish was to die and go to heaven. This he did on April the 4th, 1919, vowing as he did so to spend eternity just as he had spent the last two years, consoling a God who, like himself, did have feelings and could be hurt. After the first apparition, Francisco knew at once the nature of his mission. His little sister Jacinta, on the other hand, was so overwhelmed by the beautiful lady who had come to see them that she could think of nothing or no one else. Jacinta Marto had fallen in love, and because of this she lived in a dream until June the 13th when the lady came again. On this day, the children were shown a heart encircled and pierced by thorns, and this they understood to be Mary's immaculate heart injured by the sins of man, and that she wanted reparation. It was only then that the euphoria dispersed, especially when Lucia explained to the little girl just exactly what sacrifices and reparation meant and why they were so necessary. Jacinta became a different child, now, when she was out in the pastures, instead of dancing around and chasing after butterflies or even throwing a tantrum if she didn't get her own way, she became quiet and meditative. One day, when Lucia asked her to play, she answered, No, I don't want to play today. I'm thinking. I keep thinking how that lady told us to say the rosary and make sacrifices. How are we to do it? Francisco felt that it would be a good idea if in future they went without their lunches while out in the pastures with the sheep, and this they did. From then on, Jacinta took this business of making sacrifices so much to heart that she never let an opportunity for making one slip by. It was not, however, until July the 13th that the full realization of her mission hit her. Our Lady, as well as telling the children to continue saying the rosary every day for peace in the world, also said, Say many times, especially when you make a sacrifice, Jesus, it is for love of you, for the conversion of sinners, and in reparation for sins committed against the Immaculate Heart of Mary. After this, she showed them the vision of hell, and then said kindly, you have seen hell where the souls of poor sinners go. To save them, God wishes to establish in the world devotion to my immaculate heart. If what I say to you is done, many souls will be saved and there will be peace. The war is going to end, but if people do not stop offending God, a worse one will break out in the reign of Pius XI. When you see a night illuminated by an unknown light, know that this is the sign God gives you 
that he is going to punish the world for its crimes by means of war, hunger, and persecutions of the Church and of the Holy Father. To prevent this, I will come to ask for the consecration of Russia to my Immaculate Heart and the communion of reparation on the first Saturdays. If my requests are heeded, Russia will be converted and there will be peace. If not, she will spread her errors throughout the world, causing wars and persecutions of the Church. Although all three were upset by the vision of hell, it was Jacinta who was most affected. Hours afterwards, her face was still contorted by what she had seen. This little seven-year-old girl had looked upon hell and seen the sufferings of the souls who go there, and from that moment on, she set about her mission in real earnest. Unbeknown to her family, she went without food and drink while out pasturing the sheep, and she also gave up dancing, the favourite of all her pastimes. And together with her cousin and brother, she wore a piece of coarse rope around her waist, next to her skin. Jacinta's had three knots tied in it, which drew blood from her little body. Most of her time, however, was spent in thinking and praying, and when she wasn't, the youngster was seeking answers from her cousin, invariably on the subject of hell. When Lucia told her that people who went to hell never left there, little Jacinta became even more thoughtful, until eventually she became convinced that if everyone saw a vision of hell, they would amend their lives. When people began going to the cova in their thousands during the apparitions, Jacinta felt this too good an opportunity to let pass. So certain was she that people would be converted, she asked Lucia to tell Our Lady to show hell to everyone who went to the cova. At the end of the next appearance, the small child was very despondent because both she and Lucia had forgotten to ask the lady to do so. On yet another occasion she remarked, Do you know something, Lucia? Do you know why our Lord is so sad? The older girl said nothing, and without waiting for an answer anyway, Jacinta continued, Our Lord is sad because Our Lady said that people must not offend him any more. But nobody listens. They just go on committing the same old sins over and over again. One day, Lucia asked her cousin if she wanted a picture of the Sacred Heart of Jesus. Jacinta took it and looked closely at it, and then remarked, It's so ugly. It doesn't look like Jesus at all. He is so beautiful. But yes, I do want it, because it is him just the same. The child treasured this picture and took it with her everywhere, and at night and throughout her long illness she kept it under her pillow. Eventually, because of being constantly kissed and handled, the little picture fell to pieces. In thinking about this incident, one can imagine how frequently Jacinta implored the Sacred Heart to save sinners, and no doubt to great effect when our Lord's promise to St. Margaret Mary is recalled. The treasury of my heart includes all the graces of sanctification needed to snatch men from the brink of hell. About that picture of the Sacred Heart, Jacinta told her cousin, I keep kissing our Lord's heart because I love it so much, 
Oh, how I'd love to have a picture of the heart of Mary, too. Then I could love the two together. It was because of Jacinta's great love for her that the Mother of God continued to use this small, willing servant. When both Jacinta and her brother were confined to their beds as a result of the post-war influenza epidemic, she appeared to them. Francisco learned that he was soon to go to heaven, while Jacinta was asked if she would stay on earth a little while longer and convert more sinners. When the child agreed, Our Lady told her that she would have a lot to suffer, and that is exactly what happened. Influenza, tuberculosis, pleurisy and pneumonia all gradually sapped the little girl's strength, but she bore it all in silence and offered up the pains to save souls. Shortly before her death, Jacinta reminded Lucia about her own mission. Now look, Lucia, you've got to stay here on earth and tell the whole world that our Lord wants everyone to love the Immaculate Heart of Mary because His graces come through her. Remember to tell the people that they must take their prayers to her because our Lord wants her heart loved right along with His heart. You must tell them that they should ask for peace from the Immaculate Heart of Mary because God has placed it in her hands. Oh, Lucia, if only I could put into everyone's heart the fire that is in mine. It doesn't burn me, you know, but it makes me love so much the hearts of Jesus and Mary. Jacinta died in 1920. And just over one year later, Lucia, at the bishop's suggestion, left Fatima and became a boarder at a convent school in Oporto, and here she completed her education. As the years passed by, however, Lucia longed for the time when she would be able to spread devotion to the Immaculate Heart, for uppermost in her mind was the revelation of July the 13th, 1917, when Our Lady, on announcing the end of World War I, predicted the second, and said, In order to prevent it, I will come to ask for Russia's consecration and communions on the first five Saturdays. On December the 10th, 1925, Lucia's patience was at last rewarded. By this time, she had begun her postulancy with the sisters of St. Dorothy at Pontevedra in Spain. Our Lady, her heart encircled by thorns, appeared to her. The child Jesus was also there. He spoke, Have pity on the heart of your most holy mother, which suffers at man's ingratitude. There is no one to console her. Then his mother said, Look, my daughter, at my heart, pierced by thorns of blasphemy and ingratitude. You at least console me. I want you to make it known to the world that I promise to assist at the hour of death with all the graces necessary to salvation those who on the first five consecutive months confess, receive Holy Communion and say the rosary, meditating for fifteen minutes on the mysteries with the intention of offering me reparation. In 1929, Our Lady returned. The moment has arrived, she said. God wants the Holy Father and all the bishops of the world to consecrate Russia to my Immaculate Heart. He promises its conversion through this means. But in spite of Lucia making this known, 
promotion of the Saturday devotion had waned by 1935, and Russia remained unconsecrated. The major difficulty lay in getting every bishop of the world to agree to take part in a solemn act of consecration. Lucia had this to say. Not very long ago, I asked our Lord why he would not convert Russia without the Holy Father making the consecration, and he replied, It's because I want the whole church to acknowledge the consecration as a triumph of the Immaculate Heart of Mary, so that it may extend its cult later on and put devotion to this Immaculate Heart beside devotion to my Sacred Heart. Then came the war, and with it a greater sense of urgency to those sympathetic to Lucia's cause. During the September 1939 pilgrimage to Fatima, devotion of the first five Saturdays was officially made public, and Sister Lucia was recommended to write to the Pope regarding Russia's consecration. She did so, but not before asking the advice of our Lord exposed in the Blessed Sacrament. And there she received this extraordinary message. Pray for the Holy Father. Sacrifice yourself that his courage does not succumb under the bitterness that oppresses him. The tribulation will continue and augment, and I will punish the nations for their crimes by war, famine, and persecution of my church, and this will lie heavily on my vicar on earth. His Holiness will obtain abbreviation of these days of tribulation if he takes heed of my wishes by promulgating the act of consecration of the whole world to the Immaculate Heart of Mary with a special mention of Russia. And this Pope Pius XII did on October the 31st, 1942, in the Silver Jubilee year of the apparitions of Fatima. Then some years later... Pope Paul VI renewed it in the presence of the Council of Vatican II. At the same time, he proclaimed Mary Mother of the Church and requested everyone to personally renew their consecration to her. Thus he confirmed the teaching of tradition, which has always been that Jesus, in his words from the cross to Mary his mother and St. John, gave her to us to be our mother for all time. But first of all, Mary needed preparing. And this God did by means of the Immaculate Conception, the great favor given only to her, and which features so much in the apparitions at the Rue de Bach. In fact, because of its inscription, O Mary, conceived without sin, pray for us who have recourse to thee, the miraculous medal was first known as the medal of the Immaculate Conception. When St. Catherine Le Bourret spoke of the visitation on November the 27th, 1830, in which Our Lady appeared standing on a large globe, she said that the Blessed Virgin's feet were resting on a serpent. Mary, crushing the serpent's head, has long symbolized the Immaculate Conception. The text from Genesis reads, I will put enmities between thee and the woman, and thy seed and her seed, she shall crush thy head, and thou shalt lie in wait for her heel. Well to the fore at the Rue de Bac was Mary in her role as mediator and intercessor. 
The golden ball, which represented the world, she offered to God, and as she did so, her lips moved in prayer on our behalf. And of the brilliant rays which streamed from the rings on her finger, she said, These are the symbols of graces I shed upon those who ask me for them. The gems from which rays do not fall are the graces for which souls forget to ask. This, said Catherine, made me realize how right it is to pray to the Blessed Virgin. She is so generous to those who do pray to her, and she gives a great many graces with such joy. St. Catherine's words were re-echoed by Jacinta Marto at Fatima, who constantly beseeched everyone to pray to Our Lady, for she has the graces to give. In fact, the small girl's father said that whenever his daughter prayed, she always said, Hail Mary, full of graces. And almost the last words she spoke to her cousin Lucia were on the same subject. You've got to reveal to the world that our Lord wants everyone to love the Immaculate Heart of Mary because His graces come through her. By the graces she bestows and the love that leads her to speak to God on our behalf, Mary is already acting as a mother. And perhaps it is as mother of us all that her vocation is summed up so wonderfully. During the apparitions at Lourdes on the Feast of the Annunciation, Bernadette was moved to say she was smiling and looking at the crowd like a loving mother watching her children. Mary's vocation began at the foot of the cross. She stood there, the apostles had run away. Our Lord's sufferings were her sufferings. His tribulations were hers too, and his work was also to be her work. There on Calvary, their hearts joined, and we're reminded of this by the two hearts on the miraculous medal, one crowned with thorns and the other pierced by a sword. The M and the two hearts say enough, said Our Lady. The two hearts are interconnected again at Fatima, and our Lord's wishes are such that they should be until the end of time, which means that Mary will always share in the passion of her son, a passion which is ongoing. When talking to St. Catherine Le Bourret, Our Lady was often distressed. At La Salette, she shed many tears, and when, during the October the 13th vision at Fatima, Our Lord and Our Lady looked so sad, Francisco was overcome with grief at the words, People must stop offending God, for he is already much offended. Our Lord intimated to St. Margaret Mary the real depths of the suffering which the ingratitude of men causes him. This hurts me more than everything I suffered in my passion, even just a little love from them in return, and I would regard as next to nothing all that I had done for them and still look for a way of doing more. And this is the whole crux of the matter. So often it is the mediocrity of our lives, our compromises and our continuing to sin that causes so much pain to her son. The feeling that he toiled in vain, the torments of the passion, the exhaustion, the death, and the salvation he made possible all mean nothing 
and have failed to bring about a change in people's lives. And so Mary enters the world. Whereabouts she enters it, or how large or small the shrine which is set up after her visit, is of no consequence. Neither does it matter if we ever visit these places. What does matter, however, is what she comes to say. Her words are quite unchanging. She tells us that there will be wars, famines, pestilence and persecution of the church. And although superficially they sound like words of doom, their real message is one of hope. Our Lady comes as she did to Maximin and Melanie to bring great news, and so it is. If we reform and pray, pray a great deal, offer up to God every day of our lives all the aggravations and irritations, do good actions, and give up something or other against our will because God loves us, and because doing as he asks also obtains graces for other people, then the world will enjoy peace. Russia will be consecrated in the way our Lord asks, and it will be converted, and the people of the world will one day be with God in heaven. If nobody listens, because it is easier to go whichever way the world dictates, easier not to pray, not to be silent, not to think, then punishment must be expected. And so we will go on being punished. And if there are wars, famine and the like, and communism continues to spread, then we have no one to blame but ourselves. Even so, we are still being given a chance. Our Father in Heaven offers us a vaccine. It is free of charge and it is very powerful. It will protect us against our own selves, as well as all the errors of the world. If we accept this aid, not only will we be protected, but we will be saved, and all the graces necessary at the hour of death will be given us. That vaccine is Mary's immaculate heart as she herself said to all those to whom she has appeared since 1830. And so, my children, you will now pass on this message to all my people. Those words were not just for Catherine, Margaret Mary, Bernadette, and the children of La Salette and Fatima. They are directed at all of us. We are meant to pass on the message to all the people of the world.